You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'll be your host for this episode. In this edition of Locally Sourced Science, we're interviewing people who routinely leave the world as we know it. They aren't astronauts, and they aren't deep-sea explorers. So how do they do it? Microscopes. Microscopes are all about making the invisible visible, and they've been doing so for centuries. So, first up on today's episode, we'll have Mark Charvari's take on the Corning Museum of Glasses exhibit on the history of microscopes. Afterwards, we'll hear our new member, Nancy Ruiz, interview Cornell professor Dr. Brooks Crickert, who is researching techniques to visualize single molecules with microscopes. And finally, Esther Rakusen will interview DeWitt Middle School science teacher Sten Anderson, who is opening the microscopic world up to his students in a fun and affordable way. First, here's Mark Shavari. In August 2016, I heard on the radio that the Corning Glass Museum had a temporary exhibit called Revealing the Invisible, the History of Glass and the Microscope. Since I teach a laboratory course where students use microscopes, sometimes the very first time in their scientific careers, I told my staff, let's have a road trip and drove 50 minutes from Ithaca to Corning to see this wonderful exhibit. I remember that the first display had a replica of Anthony van Leeuwenhoek's first microscope from the late 1600s. But it looked nothing like a modern microscope. It looked like a flattened matchbox with a tiny hole on it where a piece of glass was installed. On the far end of the exhibit, there was a folded paper microscope called Foldoscope that now everyone can use with their smartphones to take a peek in the tiny worlds on this planet. Between the two, there was a wonderful array of microscope history and even a fun game where the visitors could be seen under the microscope. So while there is still an argument about who invented the first microscope, the Dutchman Antony von Leeuwenhoek is mentioned as the father of microscopy. He was observed plant and animal tissue, blood cells and minerals using his microscopes. It was the late 1600s and no one has seen these structures before. At the same time, in England, Robert Hooke was making similar discoveries and published a book called Micrographia that had wonderful collection of copper-plated illustrations he saw using his own microscope. Those microscopes all use natural light to illuminate the objects. I was around 10 years old when I received my very first light microscope from my godfather. It was a simple kid microscope, but I still remember the thrill of looking at that magnified plant tissue on a slide. It definitely changed my life and set a path for me. As a scientist. Cornell scientists David Mueller, Saul Gruner and Lena Kourkoutis will be mentioned in history alongside with Van Leeuwenhoek when we talk about the development of microscopy. They have recently developed an electron microscope pixel array detector that yields not just an image but a wealth of information about the electrons and create the image and from that more about the structure of a sample. 
In 2018, the National Science Photography Competition, organized by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, gave first prize to David Nedlinger from the University of Oxford for the photo called a single atom in an iron trap. That just shows how far we came from that flattened matchbox-sized microscope in the 1600s. I wonder what the future of microscopy will look like. Well, stay curious, my friends. This is Mark Sharvari for Locally Sourced Science. Next, we'll hear Nancy Ruiz's interview with Dr. Brooks Crickard, a professor in Cornell's Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics. In this interview, Dr. In this interview, Dr. Crickard shares his research in single molecule imaging with the goal of visualizing an organism's DNA. He will tell us how he manages to color proteins so that he may visualize them under microscopes and the challenges he has faced as a new faculty member during the pandemic. Welcome to Locally Stored Science. My name is Nancy Ruiz, and today we have Dr. Brooks Crickard. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics at Cornell University. Dr. Crickard, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your research in the lab? Thanks, Nancy. For First of all, thanks for having me um, on the show. Um, so fundamental part of my research is to look at DNA repair. So if you have, we all know that DNA has information stored in it and that information can basically be destroyed by environmental factors like, like UV rays from the sun or, or cigarette smoking. And so what we actually do is we try to use microscopy to visualize the process that your cells use to repair that DNA. So how do they put it back together and how do they put it back together correctly? And so the kind of the specialized microscopy techniques that we use, so we use single molecule uh, microscopy. And so that allows us to look at individual strands of um, DNA. And we use uh, what's called turf microscopy. So it's, it's a total internal reflection microscopy. And so what this does is it allows us to illuminate fluorescently labeled molecules um, in very small windows, basically in water. And so then we can visualize only a subset of the fluorescent molecules, uh, which creates very little background uh, in the video. So we can then take time-lapse movies. And so home videos of DNA repair enzymes as they function on the DNA, as they work to put the DNA back together. And so that's kind of just kind of general what we do in the lab and kind of how we approach uh, the problem. Now that sounds all very interesting. So you say you work with microscopes. Can you explain to us how are your microscopes different from the traditional countertop microscope that most of us has, have used in high school and college? There's a couple of differences. So first of all, we have um, the stages are, uh, this is an inverted microscope. And the difference between a, a, a regular microscope and an inverted microscope is that where the objective is positioned relative to the samples. So your traditional microscopes that you'd have in a high school biology class, the objective is basically over the top of your sample. So our samples are actually inverted, meaning the objective is below our sample. And we do this because of the specialized style of microscopy that we use. Um, another thing that's different is that we have uh, motorized stages, uh, meaning that we have very fine motor control over where we look at the sample. A couple other differences, we have 
cameras that are attached to the microscope, which so we're not just using our eyes to look down uh, binocular. We're not just using eyepieces to look at the sample. We have cameras that actually detect the photons of light that come off of the sample. Um, and then finally, I guess the big difference is instead of using, um, we use lasers. So we use um, single wavelength lasers to illuminate the uh, samples um, to visualize what's happening. So in a high school setting, you would use uh, either an epiluminescence or a epifluorescence setting um, to illuminate your sample. And we're using lasers, lasers to achieve the same purpose here. So those are kind of the, the major differences uh, between what uh, we're using and what you would encounter in, in a high school classroom. You say you work with um, cells or do you use like whole organisms to look into this like DNA repair mechanisms? So right now, the, the specialized technique that we use actually looks at individual molecules of DNA. So we, we actually purify all the proteins. So all the things that we look at, we purify them, and then we, put, we inject them into, uh, onto the DNA and then watch them. Some of the other parts of my research uh, are going to be using whole cells to look at what we call live cell imaging. But the, uh, right now, we're doing uh, just individual proteins that we look at. Can you give an example of what kind of proteins are you looking at? So we look at um, DNA motor proteins. So these are uh, proteins that are basically, if you think about it, they're kind of like the, the engines in a car. And so they use um, uh, a molecule called ATP and that actually allows them to propel themselves along strands of DNA. And so they, they have little tiny feet and they're bound to the DNA and they just kind of walk along it. So um, that's the type of proteins that we're able to look at. And if they go a long enough distance on the DNA, then we can actually calculate how fast they go, how far they go, and how many of them are present on the DNA. And that's, that allows us to really infer how they are working in the cell, um, because even though they're just individual molecules, um, they're going to function similar in a similar way in an isolated environment to how they function in cells. Um, in cells, do you think that this can this type of research can help advance, for example, research in cancer or other diseases where we know that something is happening in the cell uh, at the molecular level, right? Something is failing. Why can we, how can we use your technology, for example, to advance like the field of cancer research and other diseases? So we, we kind of, in the research pyramid, we function at the kind of at the bottom of the pyramid. So we do very basic analysis, but it is a focus on cancer research. And so, you know, as you mentioned, something goes wrong in the cell and, and in our opinion, it's always that the DNA has been damaged. And so the DNA has been damaged in some way, it's improperly put back together, or it doesn't, you know, it's not functioning quite uh, correctly. Um, and so the idea is that we, to look at these individual proteins, how they put it back together. Um, and so how are they functioning properly in cancer? But if they, if the cell is to go into what's called a disease state, which is what cancer represents, um, how might these enzymes be contributing to that disease state? How do they function in differently in a disease cancer cell than they function normally in uh, 
where they're actually trying to prevent cancer. How do you label the proteins that you are looking in your microscope? Okay, so we, we use a couple different strategies. So um, a lot of these, we actually uh, add other proteins um, that maybe that are called uh, GFP or RFP, so green fluorescing protein or uh, red fluorescing protein. And they're actually identified in a, in a jellyfish. Yeah. So we can actually fuse those to um, our proteins. And then when we express them in cells and purify them, the fluorescent protein comes with them. And so then we can use that to visualize how they function on the DNA. Um, we can also use um, small molecules that have been synthesized, fluorescent small molecules that have been synthesized, and those can actually be conjugated to specific sites on the DNA. Um, and so we can use that strategy if, if um, uh, proteins have certain amino acid sequences to, um, to label them so that, that we can watch them in real time. So how do the protein, for example, if I'm using a red fluorescent protein, how does this protein attach to the protein that you are interested in? Is that how it works? Yeah, so we, we don't, so it's actually made in the cells attached to, physically attached to the protein. So um, when, you, when you make a protein in a cell, it's in what's called an, an open reading frame, which is it tells, there's a piece of information that tells you to make this specific protein. And so what we can do is we can take a little piece of DNA and we can splice it into that open reading frame. And then when we make the protein, the fluorescent protein gets added. Mm -hmm. And so then it actually gets directly incorporated into the protein. Um, and so it just comes along because it's physically attached to our, the enzyme that we're interested in studying. How do you envision your research moving forward in the next couple of years? So I, we're going to continue to um, work on cancer research. We're going to capitalize on the, um, you know, the, the single molecule approaches that we're currently using, but we're also going to see or kind of go in the direction of being able to visualize these enzymes as they're functioning in live cells. So we want to be able to watch biochemical reactions in real time as they happen in live cells. And a lot of that is doing our homework on the biochemistry and the genetics so that we can then interpret what we're looking at in cells. And we know that, yes, we are looking at this dynamic process. And so going forward, we're really gonna use that combination to try to see these things as they happen. Have you been affected by the pandemic in any way? Yeah, so I think that I mean, I, I think everyone has been affected in different and, and unique ways. And so starting one of the things that was I interviewed for this position remotely. And so I came to Cornell without ever having seen the, the lab space because we were interviewing at the start of the, the shutdowns. Um, I, I think it was an excellent decision because Ithaca is fantastic and <laughs> is fantastic. Um, but it's been difficult to kind of get things set up. It's been the, the biggest difficulty for me is not having that like in-person human interaction with your colleagues and meeting new graduate students and kind of having that, those social gatherings where you introduce yourself to the group and, and things like that, I think has been really the most challenging aspect of the pandemic um, for me. Um, and I can't wait till we can get back to being able to doing things like that in person. Yeah, so. we can wait to go back to normal. <laughs> yeah.
Thank you very much for talking with me today, Dr. Crickard. Yes, thank you so much for having me and giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about my research. Finally, Esther Rakusen interviews Sten Anderson, a science teacher at the DeWitt Middle School in Ithaca, on his curriculums involving foldscopes. A foldscope is a flexible, waterproof, paper-based microscope. Anderson has taught students both remotely and in person on how to set up the foldscopes and use them to gather, examine, and record images of non-living and living specimens. In this unit, Anderson encouraged his students to explore the theory that all living things are made up of cells. The purchase of a foldscope for each of his students was made possible by a red and gold grant from the Ithaca Public Education Initiative. I'm speaking with Sten Anderson, a science teacher at DeWitt Middle School in Ithaca, New York. Anderson recently received a red and gold grant from the Ithaca Public Education Initiative, or IPEI, to fund a project that brought small, affordable, foldable microscopes to students in his classes. These accessible scopes are called foldscopes. Sten, thanks very much for talking with me today. Um, can you talk about foldscopes? Why did you want to introduce your students to these microscopes? Yeah, uh, so thanks for having me. Um, I so it was it was really born out of um, us going into uh, a model of teaching and learning this year with uh, the the pandemic, where it was going to be challenging to provide students with uh, direct uh, sort of hands-on experiences in science and. Uh, one of the major skills in uh, biology, especially in middle school, that we like to uh, get students involved with is microscopy. And uh, what really sort of drove the, the uh, desire was how to conduct microscopy where uh, I was going to be tasked with teaching students that were both in person and remotely. And uh, I had remembered from a uh, CIBT, Cornell Institute for Biology Teachers uh, workshop uh, a number of years ago being introduced to these foldscopes and figured that that would be a, a wonderful way to provide students with a direct experience of, of using a microscope to, to visualize uh, cells and uh, it would be manageable to do in the, in the type of uh, learning that we were tasked to take on this year. Can you describe what the foldscopes look like? Yeah, so when you uh, first get them in the package, they are uh, they're they're deconstructed, so all the all the pieces are uh, sort of uh, uh, in a, a sheet of paper, uh, like a rugged uh, type of paper that is water uh, waterproof. So uh, students have to remove all the parts from the sheet and then uh, put it together. When it is all together, uh, it allows you to pan or uh, you know move uh, a specimen around on the, the slide and it allows you to um, focus um, with a with a, a very innovative uh, kind of wedge typed uh, piece of paper and it is only a single lens uh, it is not a compound uh, lens so there's only a single point of magnification that allows you to get um, about 130 times magnification so so enough to clearly see an individual plant cell the students are also learning how to put it together and then they're learning how to use it. So is that 
part of the unit as well is learning about how microscopes work. So I really appreciated that, um, you know, one students were, were tasked with, with building them because it's not an, an easy task. So it really taught them uh, some resilience and perseverance, which I, which I was intentional about highlighting. Um, and then learning the process with, for many of the, the students who were learning remotely, uh, not being able to be directly with them. Um, it really required them to, to be, again, persistent and perseverance and rely on themselves to learn how to uh, really stick with it and get a nice focused image. And what is the grade level that you're working with? I'm working with uh, seventh graders, so about 12, 13 years old. You really have a, a task set out for you needing to communicate with students in person and also remotely. So um, what kinds of samples did you have the students look at? What, what did they prepare? In this uh, sort of model of teaching and learning, I've really tried to uh, re-envision what, what teaching and learning looks like and really tried to embrace the uh, next generation science standards. Uh, we call them the New York State uh, <laughs> Science Learning Standards, um, which are very uh, performance task driven. So I, I was committing this year to not doing traditional uh, assessments, multiple choice and short answer questions, and really embracing what the standards are asking students to be able to do, which is like gather evidence, and create models. So this, this experience was framed around the performance task that is stated uh, students will be able to plan and conduct an investigation to gather evidence that life is made of cells. Here, Anderson talks about how he guides students through the process of choosing and preparing samples for microscopy. So through the process, I, I, I engage students in, um, in the planning process. So uh, like asking them, okay, cell theory says all living things are made of cells. How can we go about doing that? What are things that we could look at to, to determine whether or not all life is made out of cells. And with the help of the students and a little bit of my sort of, uh, you know, a guidance, uh, what I, I ask students to do is um, get a minimum of uh, three specimen, um, one non-living sample. So I had students uh, look at anything from like tin foil to uh, tissue to various uh, types of paper um, to salt. Uh, and some some sort of rock samples. So one non-living sample, mm -hmm. one plant sample. Um, so it was really up to them to really choose what type of plant they wanted to look at. And then it was either one animal sample or one fungal sample to try to get the range of the kingdoms. I did teach students uh, remotely how to gather their own cheek cells um, using a toothpick. So some students uh, took on that challenge and, um, and actually uh, observed their cheek cells. Uh, and uh, what, I, what I haven't mentioned yet is the wonderful thing about these fold scopes is there's a way to, uh, with magnets, connect them to a smartphone camera. And then you can actually take 
pictures and video of what it is you're looking at and then also use the zoom on the smartphone device to increase magnification uh so so uh wonderful cheek cells a variety of mold off of various foods uh and getting to the level where you can actually see the hyphal uh structure of uh, some of these mold specimens, um, various uh, hair from a variety of mammals, from dogs to cats to humans, um, and some bloomed yeast. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I'm speaking with Sten Anderson, a science teacher at DeWitt Middle School in Ithaca. He's talking about his experience teaching students how to use the Foldscope, a portable and durable paper microscope. How did the students present their data? To, to be equitable, not all students had access to uh, smartphones to be able to take imagery. Um, so I said, uh, you have to make at least one sketch and uh, you then can do up to two images or you can do all sketches. Some students took the, uh, the chance to, to sketch everything they saw. Uh, and they shared them just digitally with me through um, our, our LMS, our Learning Management System Canvas. Uh, so I collect the, those individually. And then secondly, um, it was it was kind of an, an optional extension that I was really trying to invite and challenge students to share to a uh, community padlet. And uh, it's a type of digital corkboard that students had access to where they could upload their their photos and images so they could be able to share what they saw and uh, see what some of their their classmates were sharing. Science is about communication and uh, sharing our research and creating that pooled data set um, to really tie out that, uh, really highlight and bring forward that idea that the more data we have, the more certain we can be about um, some of the investigations that we are are conducting and, and the conclusions that we can draw. And uh, what were some of the students' reactions to the experience? <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was definitely a range. Um, students were were from like blown away by uh, what they could see and what they can find, and then um, there were there were students that were just uh, just uh, regularly frustrated um, by. Uh, the, the challenge of really trying to, to get a focused image, especially when you hook it up to a camera, a uh, smartphone camera, you're getting an, an, an additional challenge of, of trying to uh, focus, use the focus slider on the fold scope while holding the camera still. So, uh, I mean, it really, I think by and large students were, were, um, were were excited and definitely got them doing some science and the post uh, experience feedback form that I got, uh, but it was it was overwhelmingly uh, this experience was better than the other experiences because I, I was getting to do things. I asked Anderson if there's anything else he would like people to know about the fold scopes. Basically, it's 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 a it's an amazing tool, and it's a an affordable tool um, to to uh, bring into the home. And I and I first brought one in just to sort of see how it would work in July and August prior to the school year. And I mean, it really just blew me away. And I, I take it with me when I go on hikes. One, I would encourage listeners to to check them out for themselves. 
And then two, I would just like to, you know, extend my, my heartfelt thanks to IPEI for the, the grant monies to, to bring these um, paper-based microscopes into students' hands and, and all the community support, the, the people who donate uh, money to IPEI to, to sort of um, support this uh, really, I think, valuable experience for students in this year. Well, Sten uh, Anderson, science teacher at DeWitt Middle School in Ithaca, I appreciate your talking with me today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. To learn more about Foldscopes, visit Foldscope, that's one word, dot com. And to find out about the Ithaca Public Education Initiative, go to ipei.org. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. Thank you for listening to Locally Sourced Science. In today's episode, you heard Mark Charveri with a short history of microscopes. Nancy Ruiz interviewed Dr. Brooks Crickard, and Esther Rakusin interviewed Sten Anderson. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Jill Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. You can find more information on the topics covered today, as well as all of our archive shows, at our podcast website, www.locallysourcedscience.org.